G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I'm chatting with my personal financial advisor, Stuart Weymus, on how to make better overall investing decisions. And this is probably the one area that I've been spending a lot more time on myself over the last few years because it has such a huge potential to compound our results and our returns and I guess get us to that end goal of what we're trying to build with a passive income. It can help get us there a lot safer too. So why go and make all the mistakes that I've made and that our clients have made and the mistakes that Stuart's made if he could short circuit the process and learn from them. So let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. G'day, Stuart. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jared. Great to be with you. So, first time on the podcast, um, introducing a lot of my listeners to your thoughts and philosophies. So, today I'm pretty pretty excited to have you on. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about it. I, I talk about property all day and I, I, I could continue to do so. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I guess why I originally thought to get you on and if people do a bit of research into your background, you're, you're not from Perth and so you're not really an insider. I'm, gonna, I'm calling you the first of my outsiders in the series and I think you can add a lot of perspective because you're an expert in the things that you do and you also, a, a lot of the things that we're going to chat about today are, are very universal in that uh, an investor on the East Coast, if they're doing things well, is going to be doing very similar, if not the same things on the West Coast. So, yeah, I don't think uh, fundamentals are, are that unique to location, particularly with respect to property in Australia. Uh, I, I think that you can make a generalisation across all markets in terms of the sound fundamentals that are obviously going to drive uh, quality returns. I think it's different internationally, of course, which is uh, a really interesting debate sometimes. I mean, every few years, The Economist magazine will write an article to say Australian property prices by world standards too high. But, you know, when you start comparing property prices internationally, you've got to account for, you know, geographical distribution of population density, culture, all those sorts of things. But, yeah, there's a lot of um, different things in it, the mix, isn't there? Yeah, but interestingly, in Australia, you don't really have, I mean, there's some cultural differences, I guess, between, say, Brisbane, Melbourne and Perth. But, but not not that big a deal, not that big a difference. Whereas, you know, if you look on, on the same geographical location, compare, say, Holland and Spain, for example, <laughs> completely different. Well, we've got a lot of East Coast investors buying again in our markets. And yep. a lot of the um, properties that I've been selling have been getting offers from East Coast buyers sight unseen and often just on photos without anyone on the ground looking for them, which is a bit dangerous. So, that kind of leads nicely into our topic today on making better decisions. But before we get to that, I, I thought I'd give a little bit of background that I guess as I've gotten older and I've made my fair share of investing mistakes over the years, and I guess any investor that says they've never made a mistake has probably not done very much. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I know you've uh, you know been investing in a lot more cycles than I have, and I guess we both have the benefit of the learning curve we go through 
with our clients and having seen the decisions that they make. And in my case, we've got 700 odd clients and, and you know, you've uh, got a lot of clients with your financial planning, accounting and finance broking practice. But we do get to learn a lot by going through those things. And the one thing that's become really clear to me is that it's worth surrounding yourself with experts to help you make better decisions because as you get older, you don't want to, you want to kind of reduce your chances of that. And, and you are investing with larger amounts of capital and you're putting more eggs in the one basket. And especially as you get closer to retirement, you can't afford to make decisions in the same ways that you might have done when you're earlier, when you're younger. Mm. So I guess given that you're someone that I look up to and, and I've also read a lot of your read your book and absolutely love that uh, book, Investopoly, which we'll, we'll touch on. And you're also my personal financial advisor. I guess I wanted to get you on today to talk about to our listeners how to make better overall decisions. So what would you say to the role of, it, of decisions in someone's end outcomes? Well, they're critical, Jared. And I think, I reckon there's only like a handful of decisions we make over our lifetime. And if we can nail them, we'll potentially set ourselves up for great success and a, a very comfortable financial position and a comfortable retirement and no stress in regards to money. Whereas if we completely mess all those decisions up, you know, You're the reverse is come back from. Yeah, the reverse is true as well. So and it's um, a compounding effect, isn't it? Because if you can get your first decision and your second decision right, and you know, you start to benefit from the compounding of your wealth and better decisions lead to more opportunities that, you know, feed back on themselves and you can fast track that forward 20, 30, 40 years and oh God, the difference can be massive, can't it? Huge. And oh, I've got two friends. Uh, well, I've actually got more than two, surprisingly, <laughs> but uh, t- two friends that come to mind and ones that, that that's made incredibly good financial decisions and, and one the complete reverse and their poles apart, even though their incomes are very similar. And I guess you'd see that, wouldn't you, when you're, you know, that's right. you've got open book on someone's whole situation that it isn't so much about income, which where the majority of the people focus, isn't it? No, that's right. And in fact, the the one that has the lower income has done better, (laughs) slightly lower income has done better. So it's not how much you earn, it's what you do with it and those decisions. And if we think about, you know, if we apply it to property, for example, a good one is, you know, the first, very first property we buy. If we, if we make a really good decision, we buy well, we enjoy some capital growth. When it comes to upgrade or buy a family home or do something like that, we can utilize that equity and and buy in a better market. Whereas if we buy something that's a complete dud that maybe even falls in value, for example, it ends hamstring up being, you when you then come to try to buy the home because all the bank sees is more yep. borrowing there and no upside and the negative cash flow potentially yep. for nothing. Yep, yep. And both those properties could have arguably cost the same. Same stamp duty, same repayments, uh, same everything, just different decisions in regards to location and type and so forth. Time uh, of ma- the cycle as well. Yeah, being make, critical. Yeah, it can make a massive, massive change in outcomes. So decision making is absolutely critical. And I think I think the key is really what you want to do is lend someone's experience. So when making a decision, what my biggest risk is, is that I make the wrong decision. I'm not too concerned about the financial outcomes of that decision. It's the time it takes for me to realize that I've made the wrong decision and course correct. Mm, so if we go to a if we go to a sandwich shop and 
it, it's a bad choice. They give me a bad sandwich. Tomorrow I'll just go to a different sandwich shop. It's no big deal. Whereas if we make a mistake with property, we might be holding it for three or four or five years before we actually realize it's a dud property. Then we've got to get out of it and replace it and buy a better quality property. And you, through that whole process, you could have wasted seven years, seven years of opportunity costs where you could have been in a different property, different market and achieved much better outcomes. So time is the key element that you need within an investment strategy. You need the time and patience for the assets to do their work. So given that's a key ingredient that you need to contribute towards your investment strategy, it's important that you don't waste it and uh, and try and think you can do it all yourself. What you want to do is surround yourself with people that have done it before, have made their mistakes, have seen other people's mistakes, whatever it might be. And that's the experience that you want to lend off so that you can avoid making mistakes. So I guess give us some background how you fit into the property investment puzzle and help people navigate these decisions? Well, probably before they get to the point of deciding necessarily that property is their thing, as a financial advisor, an independent financial advisor, it's it's really about the starting point of working out what assets should underpin a, a particular strategy and not completely independent and ag- agnostic about whether that's property or shares or a combination of those two things. But that's really the starting point is to build a long-term strategy, understand what assets sort of underpin and going to drive that strategy, and then selecting the proven methodologies and quality assets that are going to underpin it. Underpin it. It's like Buffett says, you don't go and ask your barber if you need a haircut. If you're going to go to a buyer's <laughs> agent or a real estate agent and ask them, should I go and buy a property? Of course, they're going to say yes. If you go and ask a, a, a share broker, should I buy shares? Well, they're going to say yes too. You need to go to someone that's completely independent, but can still draw upon all the asset classes, all the material asset classes that you might otherwise consider. And it is rare because in my experience of speaking to different financial planners, I usually don't have a, a depth of experience in that's broad enough. And often they don't you know, have any insight into property and you just get the impression that they're trying to sell you on insurance products and take an advice fee and often you feel like you know better off than if you'd just done it yourself. And so you can understand the skepticism of people out there as to what value can a financial advisor add. But I guess I've found personally that it's a case of finding the right financial advisor that does have the broader view. Yeah, unfortunately, it is. It's a bit disheartening and being in the industry, it's, it's frustrating, frankly, that more people don't have deeper experience. You know, if you walk into a Ford dealership, they're going to tell you Ford's better than Holden. And that's fine. You'd expect that, right? Mm. Eyes wide open. They're there to sell Fords. But, you know, if you go to an independent dealer, you hope that they know equal amounts about Ford and Holden to make analysis of which one's going to suit you. Because obviously not everyone suits Ford and not everyone suits Holden. That's how I see property and shares. Of course, there's other sub-asset classes, but they're the main two. You need to, if I'm going to sit in front of a client and say, oh, no, you need to, you should invest in shares, not property. Forget about property. You want to make sure that I have equally sound, robust methodologies for investing both those asset classes, but most importantly, equal amount of experience for me to, with integrity, give that advice. Now, if you're giving the advice just because that's what you know, that you don't really know much about property, so let's do the share thing, to me, that that's not really financial advice. You're being sold something from somebody that has very limited abilities and experiences. So I hope that it will change, Jared, in terms of you know the newer planners coming through yeah. and recognizing the benefits of property. 
And I'm not sitting here saying everyone should invest in property, not at all. But again, you need to have equal amounts of experience in both so that you can sit there and really analyze and build a a long-term strategy for a client. And I guess it's a case of using the benefits of each of the asset classes to come together for an overall plan so that if your property doesn't do as well, then you know, you've got other feathers in your bow and you're not counting on you know, putting all your eggs in one basket per se. Yeah, spot on. And, and different assets are going to have, I mean, it's like a golf, playing golf, you've got different clubs, they do different things. Uh, you're not going to tee off with a putter because it's just not the most efficient club yeah. to get you there. So uh, financial planning is no different. You choose the the right assets and asset classes for the stage that you're at in and the, the things that you want to achieve at that stage. So if you're young, you want to build net worth. If you're getting closer to retirement, you want more passive income. They're going to require different types of assets as you go along. And so a, a good quality independent planner should help you identify those assets, make the right decisions and guide you through that process. So I guess if you were starting again as a property investor, what would what would you do? And I know it can be hard when you're asked general questions and we've just finished speaking about case by case. What are some of the ways that you can point people in the right direction to making better decisions if they are starting out? So I probably would start with the who question, not what. And I think a lot of people think, okay, I've got some spare cash or I've got some spare cash flow. What should I invest in? And I think that's the wrong decision. And I think you can apply this methodology in lots of different areas, including business and personal life and everything. It's my favorite Um, motto at the moment actually who not how (laughs) yes yes so the best answer is then or the best question i should say is then who can tell me what to do who's in the best position who's been in the position that i have been in and then who can give me or share experiences and advice on what is the the best way to sort of approach it and therefore you're going to try and find people that have been that that have walk the path that you have that you're hoping to walk and they're going to share all their learning experiences with you and it gives you a really good chance for avoiding mistakes i think it's a couple of i mean if i think back to my first property acquisition it was in a, a suburb in melbourne in 1998 so 23 years ago yeah. i bought it for 150 grand it was a run down 1960s brick veneer two bedroom house it was literally probably built in the 1960s or 50s and really hadn't had any love for or maintenance. Uh, <laughs> we, we kept that for a couple of years and sold it for about 320, two or three years later, I think. And then I used most of that capital to start my business pro solution. So that was a good decision. But today that's that property is probably worth I don't know, one, two, one, three, one, four. Yep. <laughs> so at the fullness of time, I, if I hung on to that, you know, I would have done pretty well. Although, you know, I'm happy I started Pro Solution. And if I think about my worst, my biggest property mistake was that knowing not a lot after a few years of starting my business, I bought a property off the plan, Jared, which I would never, ever, ever, ever in, <laughs> it would be the last thing I would advise anyone to do, whether it's a home or investment. Because they just don't, don't worry, Stuart. If it makes you feel better, I've bought one off the plan too. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really make me feel better, but it's, <laughs> it, 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 it gives this me some was a long comfort. Time I ago. <laughs> yeah. So I bought it off the plan in 05. It settled 07. I paid 390 for it. I realized very quickly that it, that as I skilled myself up and educated myself, that it wasn't a really good investment. I sold it two years later in 09 for 450. So I made 60 grand on it. Today that would be worth five hundred thousand. 
So th- I think there's a there's more lessons in the mistakes than there are in the successes. I could have told myself back in 09, hang on, it's increased by 60 grand. Maybe it's okay. Maybe yeah. this is the unicorn. <laughs> Maybe it will be okay. But I'm so glad that I sold it back in 09 because, you know, I would have made 50 grand over what, nearly 14, 15 years. That's not a good outcome. Yeah. That's a terrible outcome. So I think recognizing when we've made a mistake and course correcting is good. It shows that holding good quality property, and I'm not suggesting the first property I bought was that great quality, but holding for long-term really drives a lot of the returns. Although, as I said, I, I sold the property to start my business. So there's no, there's certainly no regrets there. But so I can tell those two stories. And I think that they, that they would send a very clear message to someone that's contemplating their first property purchase. Yeah. And they're the learnings that I think that are incredibly valuable because if I, if I could go back and educate myself in 1989 for 150 grand, for actually just slightly more than 150 grand, I could have bought in a much, 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 much better area. And that property would have been worth $2 million today. Yeah. Right. So even though it looks like, okay, you didn't do so bad and you doubled your money within two or three years, of course, I did some renovations to the property. I could have and done a, I did a lot of things in property and was very active and bought a lot of property and sold a lot of property too. But when I looked at what I was left with after paying taxes and if what I really gained after doing my development and also being very busy having um, joint venture partners and it was, I've really come full circle in seeing that holding a quality property that has a proven history of returns and what that can do over 10, 20, 30 years, you know, the compounding effect, it's just so powerful, isn't it? It's powerful, but you've got to, you've got to participate in a bit of delayed gratification. And uh, we and, don't like uh, those words, Gen uh, Y. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Okay. I was speaking to my wife and I was saying probably the best, the best exercise for delayed gratification is wine. I, I really, I'm a big wine mm-hmm. fan, red wine fan. But one of the things is when you go and buy a, a case of red wine to say, oh, I'm going to sell this is, is there's actually no enjoyment, no dopamine hit initially because you know, okay, I'm going to buy this wine, I'm going to put it down for maybe 10 years before I even open a bottle. Whereas if my wife goes shopping and goes, buys a new pair of <laughs> shoes, she can put them on straight away, right? So there's a, there's a immediate sort of heated dopamine. Anyway, I'm just justifying my wine purchases to my wife <laughs> yes. as saying it creates better behaviors, but you're training true. yourself. Yeah. That's right. But it's true. If we can, if we can educate ourselves around the benefits of delayed gratification, don't go for the shiny new object buy something that's fundamentally sound, even if it's a bit of an ugly duckling, but it's otherwise got a strong, fundamentally sound land value component. In the long run, it's going to do well. In a couple of years, we might not see much of the benefits and certainly much of the benefits or difference between a good asset and a bad asset. But after 20 years, there'll be a a massive chasm of uh, a value differential there. uh, And that's where the reward is. So other than like suburban and property selection, what are some of the other mistakes you've seen investors make? I think I think most mind? of it I think most of it, Jared, is is in the actual property okay. selection. Yep. I would say that's ninety percent of mistakes. 
The other ones that I see is over-investing, going too hard, buying too many properties too quickly. But most of that is because they're chasing a number, they're chasing a portfolio of five properties rather than, you know, what is that my portfolio going to deliver me in terms of investment returns over long run? To me, that's a far more important KPI than how many properties that is. And some of those goals are more ego-driven than financial, but but all mistakes can be traced back to buying the wrong property, the wrong property in the wrong area, never the wrong price and never the wrong timing, Mm. right? So you could buy at the peak of the market, but if it was 20 years ago and it was the right asset, you have a heap of equity. If you've paid $20,000 more than it was worth, but you've held it for 20 years and it's the right asset, you have a heap of equity. All those mistakes that you know go to our Correct ego, we like to get a deal and we like to buy just before the market takes off, all makes us feel really good. But in the long run, it doesn't really contribute anything to the success of an investment strategy. It's all about buying the right asset. So if you're going to obsess about one thing with property, obsess about the quality of, of the asset that you're buying and buy the highest quality asset that you can afford. Excellent advice and very mirrored in the episodes that I've recorded so far on the podcast. So it's great to know that we think similarly considering you're my financial advisor, but (laughs) um, that is pretty key as well to find someone that you're in alignment with when choosing the team that are around you. And I guess I also wanted to pose the question to you, why do you think a lot of investors, and this would be the majority of our clients, would only have one or two properties? And and you mentioned the the type of investor that goes too hard too quickly, but I'm seeing almost the opposite, that people haven't thought about what their end goal is and they don't have a plan. So they're, they, they're just almost buying one property or two properties and thinking it might, that'll be enough. They don't, it's not towards anything. There's probably a good reason that I think it's 90% of investors only own two or less properties. So what would you say to that? I think most people don't really have a coherent idea on what their investment strategy looks like. Yep. How does property, how is property really going to help them retire? How does super fit into that? What other assets do I need? Should I be buying shares? So, you know, if you have no investment properties, then buying one's a relatively easy decision. But then after you've got one, what to do now? What to do next? Do I go and borrow more and buy more property? Do I invest in shares? It all starts to become a little bit confusing. And I think in the face of multiple options, humans will typically typically decide not to make the decision. Yeah. So... I think that's just, I think that it's a, it's a symptom of that. But, you and know, obviously like, also, you know, I think we've joked around and it's <laughs> very fresh and real for me that buying property is a game of finance and mm. it can be incredibly painful to. <laughs> 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 Certainly was for us in our most recent purchase, but big picture, it is all worth it when you look at, you know, what you're able to do and acquire and the other side of that pain. But, I guess when people come up against these difficulties, it does take some effort to work around that finance game, doesn't it? Uh, anyone that's applied for a loan, I think in the last two or three years would know exactly what you're talking about. It's a <laughs> it's a, a laborious, long-winded, drawn-out, ridiculous process. Hopefully it gets easier, but it probably won't really. Things never really get easier. They always get more difficult or more challenging. Mm. But again, as I'm you hoping and I... hoping one day they might have enough data on us. <laughs> dynamically and instantaneously that you just go to a property that you want to buy, put your thumbprint down and then 
you're instantaneously approved. You reckon that, we'll ever get there? That sounds beautiful, but not with <laughs> not with these banks. <laughs> no. Not with the banks we've got. They've got too many legacy systems. So even if if someone invented something like that, they it would just be too hard to plug it all would in. Not be possible, yeah. yeah, yeah. But again, it comes back to a who, not what question. So who's going to help me solve this finance puzzle? For example, you're much better off to get someone that's been doing it every day of the week for the last fifteen years than try and figure it all out yourself. It's just not worthwhile, and you're chances of success are really low. So you're right, it's a finance game. So we shouldn't let finance be a hurdle. I mean, sometimes it is. And practically, there's Mm -hmm. only so much we can borrow. Everyone has a a maximum borrowing capacity. But making sure that you extend your borrowing capacity as as much as you safely can do so will pay dividends because it means you can either buy a better quality property or more property. And in the long run, if you do that well, the results will speak for themselves. So tell us a bit about evidence-based property selection because you were probably one of the first people that I found that was able to put it across in a really clear way. And even though I'd been in property and had my business for 13 years and had been investing for 17 or 18 years, it it struck me like an absolute truth. And it's really uh, impacted my overall philosophies to how I approach my investing and what I suggest for our clients too. So just take us through your thinking and, and how you've come up with your thoughts around that. Well, a lot of people when investing think it's very subjective, you know, that they've got to find someone that has an opinion about what to do and they need to trust that opinion. But actually, everything in finance and financial planning is very objective. The view, My view would be is why would you invest in an asset or adopt a methodology to invest in an asset class if there's no evidence that it's going to work? Like you just wouldn't do it. It's the same with drug trials. You know, they'd have trials to make sure it's efficacy and it's going to actually do what it says on the label. So the same should be true with finance. And the second thing is that there's nothing that goes on in finance or investing that shouldn't be easy to explain that's just rooted in sound logic. Mm. And and if someone can't explain something in simple terms, it either means they don't understand it themselves or they're hiding something. There's some smoke and mirrors in there. So if we apply that methodology or approach to investing in property, we then want to look at what are the attributes, what are the common attributes that investment, all investment grade property have? And I could border it down to three attributes. The first one is strong land value component. Obviously, we all know land appreciates, building depreciates. So the more land we have, the greater the proportion of our asset is growing. But the reverse, put it in uh, reverse context, the, the smaller the proportion that is building value is depreciating. Uh, so we want more than 50% land value, but not any land is is good. We want scarcity. We want an imbalance of supply and demand. We want a location where there is no available vacant land, at least not within sort of 10 or 15 Ks. So well-established, built-up suburbs. And Um, and it's such a disproportionate thing when it comes to supply and demand because when the market's tight as it is now in Perth and going very well, you see those areas doing exceptionally well. And even then when we go through a bad market and having been through a few of the cycles now, I've seen what performs in both types of markets And it's the outer areas that take a massive hit. I feel so sorry for any of our clients that are out there. We're obviously managing the property and, you know, keeping a quality tenant and keeping them without stress for that time too. But it's certainly very stressful when they ask us for an appraisal and, you know, their values might be 30, 35% down on what they paid. And it's just heartbreaking to see 
the huge swings that type of asset would give to them, you know, just relates back to exactly what you're saying about land supply is so key. Yeah, well, scarcity. And so just notionally, for example, you want to invest in an area or type of property that has 10 buyers for every one seller. And you want those buyers to be very diverse, maybe some investors, maybe some first-time buyers, some upgraders, some downsizers, you know, diverse Mm -hmm. range, diverse socioeconomic backgrounds, et cetera. And, And so if something happens in the market, you might end up with five buyers, but as long as you've got more than two, you're going to get some price appreciation. So that excessive demand creates the scarcity. And the last one is proven performance. When we go back and have a look at the growth rate of a particular asset, a particular property, and we have a look at if it's comparable, the one next door and the one across the street, it starts to build a bit of a data set, a bit of a story on what the historic growth has been. And it will inform us about what we can expect in the future. And the reason for that is that- And so you do that on the specific property level, don't you? And look at surroundingly similar properties and look back at where what they've actually grown at, at a compound average annual growth rate. And it was probably one of the first times that I've, that's definitely where I picked that little gem up from. And it seems so basic, but how many people, raise your hands while you're listening, (laughs) actually went and calculated the past growth of their property based on its past selling prices before they bought it? And if you didn't, you're really approaching that from a a real guessing game point of view, aren't you? You haven't even looked at the history. Yeah, you're throwing darts at a dartboard. So if I'm looking at 15 Smith Street, I'll look at 13 Smith Street, I'll look at 17 Smith Street, I'll look at 14 across the road. As I said, it builds a data set. And the things that drive value tend to be static and factual. So that is, they don't really change or they take many decades to change. You know, So hospitals, locations, schools, shopping strips, arterial roads, all those sorts of things typically don't ever change over mm-hmm. many, many decades. So and they factual. almost feed back around on themselves and continue to drive an area. The good schools get the extra money, they get the better teachers, they get, you know, the better people wanting to go there, the better amenities, continue to attract people, the locations themselves with distance to river, beach, city, you know, all these things. Unless something drastically happens to alter that trajectory, then you can almost expect that the similar level of demand is going to exist. Yep, exactly right. That they're 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 very static. You know, they don't really change that much. So if we then, so if we're looking at property and its growth rate has been fantastic, then we need to understand why is it being fantastic? Oh, it's been in this great school zone. There's a hospital close by, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, all the amenity, and then we can form a view. Well, if it's if it's shown 12 percent growth over the last forty years. I don't know what the next 40 years is going to be like, but chances are it's going to be good. But the reverse example would be if it's only grown at 3% per annum, what are you investing it for? You're taking a view that the past won't repeat itself, that for some reason, the growth is going to... You're better at choosing things than what history dictates. And why take the risk? Why would you invest in something that hasn't been proven? So it's strong land value component. You want the scarcity... And then you want the proven performance. Those three things are fundamental to all investment grade property. And I guess people listening, if they've made property mistakes or they've got assets that have worked or haven't worked, if if they just apply those three characteristics over the top of those assets, they'll clearly work out why they have worked or in fact, why they haven't worked. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And it's so simple, which is what I love. (laughs) Yep. 
So I thought we'd touch on before we wrap up, tell us a bit about your book, Investopoly, because it's a great um, resource for someone to really understand your overall philosophies when it comes to investing. And I was just flicking through it again this morning and I was like, yep, that just makes so much sense. Yes, yes. Each chapter I 100% agree with. So I've actually given it to a few friends and I think each of them might have become your clients. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us a bit about what someone can take from the, the book and so, so coming back How to our came que- to write it. yeah, coming back to our question, which is why you know why do people stop at one property or what? Why do most people stop at one investment property? Was it, it was a really good example of why I decided to write the book, and and the reason, as I suggested, is I think that there's just too many options, and no one really knew which option to to pick. But meeting clients, uh, new prospective clients every day in different circumstances and so forth, and doing that for well, nearly 19 years now, there's a, a certain set of rules or questions that I would ask every single time in order to d- determine what should they do next? Should it be super contributions? Should it be invest in property? Should it be something else? And so what I, I sat down, I wrote the book over probably a year and a half and sat down and try and solidify that whole process into just a set of rules the rules that we could all follow by follow in order making financial decisions to make sure we make the right decisions at the right stage of life uh, and avoid making any mistakes. And so the the promise, I guess, underlying the book is if you follow those eight rules, you won't make any mistakes and you'll build wealth. Uh, that might sound very simple and easy, but but again, I would invite people to read the book and if they've made financial mistakes, they would track it back to one of the one of the breaking one of those those <laughs> eight rules, and as I said, I, I think finance is easy, building wealth is easy, investing is easy. We, we just tend to make it more difficult as humans. So everything's rooted in simple simple logic. There's evidence based strategies out there where the overwhelming evidence demonstrates that if you take these steps, if you apply these rules, that you'll achieve good outcomes in the long run and we just need to follow those rules so mm. yeah we've had some i've had some really good feedback about the book and i'm really glad that you know it's a laborious process writing a book and i'm glad i uh, <laughs> i sacrificed all that time doing it i guess it takes the pressure off and that's the feeling that i've had when you have these rules and you have a plan and you can see where you're headed because then you can be like okay well it, I love how you actually break it down to a one-page plan and it it just simplifies everything so that, okay, well, I don't need to go out out and take over the world to end up with the level of passive income that I want. If I just, you know, take these steps and do these simple things and relating back to what you said, if if you just make a, a few handful of decisions and make them really well, then the trajectory and the outcome that you can get to is, you know, a lot more possible and, and you can take the pressure off, can't you? And if you, if you apply it in today's sort of metric, you know, that there's a lot going on. There's Tesla's going nuts and Bitcoin's over $50,000 and Afterpay, although it's been smashed today, Afterpay's rise at tenfold return since March. And- well, this is what relates into the, so a lot of the mistakes that I made in that when I chase aggressive returns, it doesn't always have that proven history and I might get it for that one-off time, but then ultimately I end up needing to sell the asset or I've exposed myself to too much risk and I don't just get the uplift, I get, you know, I risk the capital, which can be one of the greatest problems for any investor is not being able to return 
return their capital, not not just get a return on capital. <laughs> That's so, it. Yeah, what were you saying about yeah to chase it? Because I I was very guilty of chasing the shiny objects and and thinking that it was getting me there, but I was very busy and very active, and but really I would have been a lot better off adopting these philosophies a lot earlier. Property investors can learn a lot from the share market. I think the share market is studied to an nth degree, like and some of the studies, longitudinal studies, go back a hundred, two hundred yeah. years. There's a lot and of I love drawing par- parallels as well with my market updates and yeah you know so much of the property markets often just the media takes a headline of what's happening happening in that moment but they don't focus on you know longer term trend and they're so short sighted that you know a lot of people are making decisions based on that short sighted view which is also not a good thing <laughs> yeah that's right so there was a, a really good study done on trend investing and momentum investing investing in something that's really popular and even if you get the timing right the trading costs would be too much that eat away a lot of your returns so it's a great study and i can then present you with a whole bunch of evidence that that's just not going to work so again if you're if all the evidence says it's not going to work then why would you do it i guess it's like you know turning to your wife and saying oh, i've built my investment strategy it's based on gambling, playing blackjack, let's go to the casino. I'm really entertained by my investing, but you know, you shouldn't be investing for entertainment, should you? No, that's right. And everyone knows it's a loser's game, so it's not going to work. Why would you do it? Well, it's the same with Bitcoin or those sort of fad style investing. You've got to trace it back to fundamentals, back to the rules and logic and work out what you're doing. Are you speculating or are you investing? I'm very much in the investing camp. Speculating might be fun. You're going to the casino and and gambling a little bit of money just for fun is fun, but it's not investing. And so those rules help us, uh, help keep us on the sort of straight and narrow, make fundamentally sound decisions. In the long run, we'll look like the winners. In the short run, there's always going to be another winner. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always going to be someone tomorrow that's picked a, a suburb that's just gone nuts, a, a property type that's gone nuts, a share that's gone nuts. But that one-off gains are not going to be successful enough to get them yeah. to where they're going. You want those repetitive, compounding, continual, almost perpetual gains over the long run to really do all the heavy lifting. Well, I guess we've seen almost very close to home here in WA as well. Many people have got burnt chasing the shorter-term gains of our mining towns, and boy, they came down afterwards. And you know. I guess that's case in point as to why the steady and longer term approach is going to get you there a lot quicker in the end. Yep. And anyone that's, anyone that's done that just needs to look at Tesla and Afterpay. And, and I would say those stocks make less sense than what mining property prices made before the, before the cra- crash or correction. So the fundamentals just aren't there. It's just not worth taking the risk. So as a final thing, where can our listeners go if they do want to look into Pro Solutions and I guess how can you potentially help some of our clients and listeners? I would probably just say Google Investopoly, which is like the word monopoly, but obviously invest before it. Investopoly and either pick up the book or listen to my podcast or or weekly blog and just start educating yourself. And if that sounds good, I'm easy to contact on the web. I would say that's a a great starting point. Okay. Well, thanks heaps for coming along today, Stuart. I know we could probably chat for hours, both being lovers of uh, property and investing, and uh, we can't uh, record it all for our clients, but I'll be speaking to you in the next few weeks about my uh, personal stuff. (laughs) It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you and and thanks very much for the invitation. Cheers. See you, mate. Bye. Bye.